I'm Ida Stepman. I'm Ben Weingarten. I'm Josh Hammer. And I'm Delano Squires. And this is NatCon Squad, where common good and common sense meet. NatCon Squad is produced by the Edmund Burke Foundation, the home for national conservatism. Subscribe now on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, so we have a, a very necessarily speculative show uh, for you this week. Um, we're going to kick it off with Josh, and he's going to tell us about the incursions of balloons or uh, other UFOs into U.S. airspace that are being shot down. Um, we're going to move then to Ben's segment, talking about black, the blacklisting of conservative outlets. Um, and then we're going to move uh, to uh, our new guest host, uh, Dylan Squires, and he's going to talk about how the NAACP puts abortion over family. Um, and then I'm going to finally talk as much as, as is known about this uh, Ohio train disaster that is is causing enormous ec- uh, ecological and potentially human devastation um, in East Palestine. So uh, with that, we'll kick it off and turn it turn it over to Josh. Okay, welcome to the tinfoil hat edition of Nakon Squad, everyone. We we tried to bring in Alex Jones as a guest this week, but unfortunately, he was unavailable. I heard he's interviewing Kanye again or something like that. No. Um, welcome back. So we do have a fun show for you. Uh, welcome, obviously, Delano. Great to have you with us um, this weekend and, and moving forward. So let's start off with the news of the week, really the news of the past week and a half, two weeks, perhaps, which is this spate of balloons or literally UFOs. I mean, UFO has a technical definition, of course, unidentified flying objects. So there has now been a spate of literal UFOs that have traversed in North American airspace. There had been numerous just over the past few days alone, this past Super Bowl weekend. So let's kind of just recount, and then we can kind of go through what we know, what we may think, what we may want to know, and why we frankly don't know more than what we currently know. So I have, uh, my column last week was partially about this. I do want to also flag that Ben has a new column out this week for the Epoch Times that kind of asks various questions about the the, the the first spy balloon in particular there. So we've already touched on in, in, in previous coverage here at Nacon Squad, the first Chinese surveillance spy balloon, which China itself had the audacity to tell us was some sort of meteoro- meteorological, if I can pronounce my words correctly, some sort of kind of weather kind of survey device, which obviously is facially implausible. We know for certain that this was an intelligence gathering mission. One of the questions that that there are so many questions that still need to to be answered about that particular spy balloon, one of which uh, Ben raises is, would we have even known about this had the good local denizens, I believe it was in Montana, had they not informed to their local newspaper, I believe they saw it with the naked eye. This this massive thing hovering at it or, or flying at around 60,000 foot altitude. I don't know. Why did we not shoot it down? I mean, initially they told us that there was debris. I mean, as we, as we discussed last week, that is just totally implausible. This is Montana, for God's sake. You know, are you worried about hitting bison in Glacier National Park? I mean, the thing is just, it's, it's absurd on space. So that happened. And now there have been three separate aerial incidents since then. So one was uh, was shot off the northern coast of Alaska there in the Arctic Ocean uh, near uh, Barrow, Alaska, uh, kind of the oil uh, Anwar region of the state. The second was shot down not too terribly far from there in the Yukon Territory. So that's northwestern Canada bordering Alaska. Not entirely obvious to me why the Canadian military could not take this thing down itself, but apparently the U.S. military, Biden and Trudeau, got on the phone this past weekend. I think it was this past Saturday, if I'm not mistaken. 
and the U.S. military shot this thing down as well. And then the most recent episode was Super Bowl Sunday, I believe it was, or at least it was late. I think it was on Sunday, where this fourth object was shot down kind of off the coast of the state of Michigan over Lake Huron by, uh, by, an, by an F-16, if I'm not mistaken. So the obvious question here is what the hell is going on? And what the hell is going on and why, at least as of this recording, do we not know what is going on? Why has there been such such silence coming from the administration? And, you know, look, I put my cards on the table. I'm not necessarily kind of like a full kind of absolute civil libertarian transparency at all costs kind of guy. I, I, I understand that there is some need for the government to not be fully transparent about all things national security related there. But what I will say is that if this is a pressing enough situation where Joe Biden and Justin Trudeau basically have each other on speed dial, you know, throwing kind of Mark Milley and Lloyd Austin and all kind of the, the defense and military apparatus, and basically everyone here is on speed dial about what we're going to have to send out an F-16 or an F-22 to shoot down a literal UFO, you know, I don't, think, I don't think it's asking a whole lot to say that we should know a little bit more than what we currently know, because we currently know basically absolutely nothing other than the details that I already mentioned surrounding that first balloon so you know there are basically two theories out there i i guess three theories maybe uh, so the first theory which is kind of my personal guess to me that's kind of the occam's razor the most simplistic response is that this is a series uh, of of chinese kind of just just messing with us they see a very craven and weak president and they're basically just trying to see what they can do to, uh, as a as a sh sheer show of intimidation, possibly leading up to a future People's Liberation Army invasion of Taipei or something along those lines. Another theory is that there have been some kind of perhaps kind of bad faith actors out there who are just launching these things because apparently we don't even know whether these are balloons, these these next three devices. We don't know the nature of how they stay afloat. So maybe they were just kind of random rednecks, I think was the term that Eric Erickson used in his Substack post. And maybe there was random people shooting these things, things out there after they saw what happened with the first spy balloon. I don't personally find that plausible. And then the last theory is that we have just expanded basically the filters, the search algorithms for surveying Ameri North American airspace. And now we just basically see more in the aftermath of the spy balloon than we otherwise would have seen. But my obvious my, my question to that is if that was the case, why wouldn't they just say it? I mean, that's like a fairly anodyne, simple thing that the military brass could just convey to the American people. So, you know, I, I guess I'll just end on that note and throw it open to you guys. Um, I, 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 my biggest question is why is there just this complete and utter lack of transparency right now? It seems to me a little galling. Well, let me just say uh, I'm on the side of probably red China over rednecks for the vast majority of these uh, aerial vehicles that have been breaching our airspace. And as, of course, the Biden administration was quick to disclose, I believe after we shot down the first balloon off the coast of the Carolinas, uh, that China, of course, has a massive global air surveillance operation initiative and they've been testing of course these balloons for years they're historically going back decades there's been the use of balloons by military forces in these types of operations but they've been doing so to engage in espionage in countries across the world again i think only disclosed because arguably uh, civilians in montana noticed it in other words so let's put our cards on the table Let's assume that the government knew for years that China was engaging in these kinds of aerial incursions. Why is it only that we found out about it after the Montanans spoke out? Is it because 
the operation was exposed and thus consequently the government had to address it? And if so, that raises another, a, a couple other questions. One, were we detecting these balloons in the past? Number two, were they able to act with total impunity in our airspace? And to what extent did that imperil our national security? We know, at least initially, that the Biden administration, according to reports, wanted to keep this hush-hush because of their vaunted uh, shitty Anthony Blinken powwow, which was postponed, consequently. But it, it raises the question of, was politics the number one focus of our administration when it came to these surveillance balloons? And has that been the focus of this administration? Or was it national security? And then also, are they not being transparent or did we really not detect these breaches in the past? And if we didn't detect these breaches, and I think the phrase that the commander of NORAD used was that there was an awareness gap about these balloons in the past, what does that say about our air defenses? And in China's and maybe other adversaries probing and prodding, what else had they seen in terms of our eyes on the sky or lack thereof in the past? And what other possible breaches and compromise have we been subjected to. So, you know, obviously there's a propaganda coup of being able to send these surveillance vehicles over the U.S. mainland and then fly it across and traverse the entirety of the nation. There's the probing and prodding to see how we respond. But I think even more than the issue of capability is an issue of will and that we didn't have the will to shoot down any balloons, it would seem, until this one over the Carolinas. And now only subsequently, a bunch of other shoot downs raises the question, how many, other how many other vehicles have been over our airspace in, say, the last decade? And who deployed them? And how did we respond to them or not? Uh, all of this should raise huge alarm bells. And also, by the way, I, I always would ask the question here as, you know, now we're shooting all of these balloons down. What are we diverting our attention from as well? And so I think this is just a huge win for communist China and various other adversaries as well. And the lack of transparency, it's completely uncalled for here. They have to be transparent with us and level with the American people. Now, to some extent, obviously, to Josh's point, you know, while being sensitive to not wanting to give away the game in terms of what our capabilities are, what we know, what our enemies may know. Uh, but even setting that aside, you can't use the cover of classified sensitive materials here. Now, it's out in the open. The Americans have seen it and we need to demand answers. Yeah, as, as Ben supposed, there are kind of two unsettling options here, both for different reasons, right? One, this happens all the time, and we didn't know about it, because there are some of these phrases, as Ben and Joshua pointed out to you, coming out from different Pentagon spokespeople um, that do seem to be genuinely a little bit taken aback by it. Um, now, maybe that's an act. It's very hard to say, but that's an incredibly unsettling option, right? Just that, that we just don't know what's floating across our airspace. Um and now, now that we're looking for it, we're finding a lot more that we didn't know the existence of. Or the second unsettling option is the Biden administration didn't want to announce a public posture towards China. And as Ben pointed out, the fact that this could be seen by, uh, you know, the naked eye and people in, in Montana, um, he doesn't want his hand to be forced by that fact um, and perhaps doesn't want to announce something more belligerent. Remember, he had that weird line in the State of the Union about, you know, nobody wants to be Xi Jinping like um Right. And he really didn't address a lot of these things. Um, it, it may be that he does not. His administration is not prepared uh, to announce a public posture towards China that would be required if he were to level with the American people about some of these incursions. Of course, I guess the third unsettling option is this. This isn't China, Russia or North Korea. This is aliens. 
Had to be mentioned. <laughs> Alex Jones has been right about a lot of things. Sure. <laughs> we can no longer dismiss those possibilities after the last few years, I feel like. Yeah, I, I think one of the things that, that um, is apparent to me is that uh, as, a, as a nation, it feels like we just feel vulnerable as a country. Um, I, th I think about this like as a, as a father and a husband. It, it feels as if, you know, the doors are falling off the hinges, there's a leak in the roof, no part of the house is secure. Um, and I think you see this sort of leaking out in, into the general public. So, so Inez, and, and to everyone's point, we're not even sure the extent to which this has been going on for, for years. And if so, um, if foreign countries are able to, to you know, put balloons into our airspace, uh, are there submarines spying on us, right? Are there other types of, of you know, uh, remote controlled vehicles of one type or another that are, that are gathering surveillance? So. It's it's a bad look all around, and I think in an age of technology, um, it's impossible to have the type of secrecy um, that that the government once took for granted. Because people will see things, and then they'll record them, and then they'll put them online, and then they'll force the hand of of you know government agents to to have to respond. So uh, it, it's unsettling. Uh, I'm not necessarily on the on the aliens. Uh, I'm not there yet, but. The heavier the charge, the heavier the heavy evidence, and and if and if that is in fact the case, um, then I guess we'll we'll, we'll go from there. Um, so with that uh, unsettling note, we're we're going to transition to Ben to talk about something more domestically unsettling. Hmm. Yeah, let me just say, aliens, I think, is the best case scenario we're dealing with here. So, uh, but we'll we'll see how it plays out. So uh, for another. Uh, riveting and uplifting story here. Um, Gabe Kaminsky has done some excellent reporting at the Washington Examiner on what he terms disinformation Inc. And disinformation Inc. I think ought to be seen as part and parcel of a story that we cover in some form or fashion virtually every week, which is the censorship regime that's being imposed upon Americans used to crush and silence dissenting voices, namely conservative ones, but really anyone that dares to stray from the prevailing progressive ruling class woke orthodoxy. And what Kaminsky looked at is not so much the quote unquote content moderation scheme, which is to say blacklisting or shutting off deplatforming of individual social media accounts or filtering out of certain keywords or deranking people algorithmically but actually an assault on the very business models that keep conservative outlets and therefore conservative voices afloat. Uh, specifically, he broke down this sort of emerging industry of disinformation, Inc., which are these companies, putative companies anyway, at times taxpayer-funded, as he's revealed, through grants coming from State Department-associated organizations, who go out there and rank news outlets by, quote unquote, least least risky versus most risky. And of course, uh, in the case of the most notable disinformation watchdog, uh, an outfit called GDI, it's all conservative websites that are the most risky and the highest disinformation risk. And the least risky are pretty much uniformly leftist legacy media outlets, with the exception of the Wall Street Journal. And basically, advertising companies look to these sources, these disinformation sources, to determine what news outlets 
ads should not be run on effectively. And so they have these least to most risky rankings of websites. And then they also have these quote unquote exclusion lists, which is to say blacklist, do not run advertisements on these outlets, which means of course those outlets are going to be deprived of substantial revenue driver in their ad revenue. And so Kaminsky breaks this down in great detail. There are a number of worthwhile quotes within the pieces, including from uh, Mike Benz, uh, as he notes, the State Department's ex-deputy assistant for internal comms and information policy. He said that the implementation of ad revenue crushing sentinels like NewsGuard, Global Disinformation Index, that's GDI, and the like, has completely crippled the potential of alternative news sources to compete on an even economic playing field with approved outlets like CNN and the New York Times. Uh, there's so much wrapped up in this disinformation ink, but it goes to the broader theme that we've returned to time and time again of the notion that speech is violence, disinformation has the potential to incite violence, disinformation is, of course, as our ruling class defines it, used as a pretext then to silence voices. And this is kind of writ large how that model is being implemented in terms of attacking conservative voices broadly through outlets. So I think it's a really important piece. It has to be seen hand in hand with this broader censorship regime that we've spoken to. And it's a taxpayer funded assault on the First Amendment when you have our tax dollars via the likes of the State Department funding these disinformation outfits, which these ad companies conveniently use to silence voices that you know, typically these retailers don't like in the first place. So I think it's a huge story. Uh, certainly food for thought for the weaponization committee, the House Weaponization Committee. And, you know, my question kind of to the group broadly is, how do we respond to this? And, and let's note up front, there is a whole, quote unquote, anti-disinformation industry out there operating every single day, has been operating for years. There's nothing like this on the right to compete against effectively economic boycotts, the use of the government to shut down these voices. And I'm not saying that the right should engage in an explicit tit for tat in terms of let's silence leftist voices. I'm not saying that at all. But I am saying there's not even close to a bulwark against this, any kind of countervailing force. So the question is, how do you respond in an environment that is so tilted against our voices? And that's not a rhetorical question. Well, two two points in response to that. One, um, as you pointed out, right, there's there's this NGO complex. The, the lines between what is government uh, and what is private are incredibly unclear. And that's just, just the shape um, of, of the regime we live under. And essentially, you know, in every different context, it's going to require different solutions. Uh, but people who don't understand that, who see, still think in terms of this clear delineation uh, between private companies and the government, are just not accurately describing the, the shape of, of frankly, um, the, the regime and the government that we live under um, and the power that we live under. So... I think that's that's the first obvious point. This is just yet another example of that, that those lines of accountability are not like, OK, government over here in a silo can or can do certain things, can't do certain things because of the First Amendment. And then, um, you know, private companies in a different silo having complete uh, First Amendment rights themselves. That heuristic doesn't seem to line up with what we see in reality. Um, the, the second point is, is this uh, kind of quantitative laundering almost uh, um, of ideological bias uh, into through various uh, uh, sort of <laughs> I was pointing this out the other day on Twitter, like various charts, graphs. You know, everyone remembers that that uh, graph that shows 
that the Republican Party is becoming more authoritarian while the, the Democratic Party is holding steady, uh, protecting democracy, like these kinds of of laundering ideological priors into, quote unquote, scientific um, indices, charts, um, the idea that you can measure misinformation. Uh, you can measure what percentage the New York Times put out a, a, a chart recently. You can measure what percentage of misinformation in each of these outlets, right, that was that was blacklisted. Like, for example, I think they said Steve Bannon's War Room has 19.8% misinformation, where Crowder might have like 17%, right? Um, the idea that that putting this quanti like quantification on uh, your ideological priors makes them neutral and objective. Um, it's very similar to the the idea that we saw during the pandemic about trust the science, right? The idea that there's no judgment and no politics in politics. Everything can, in fact, be um, quantified scientifically, that, that government um, can be managed scientifically. Uh, this is the whole idea behind political science, right, as opposed to politics. Um, and I think really the, to the extent that there are solutions, um, it should be the reassertion of politics. What we're finding is that as politics, the political sphere has shrunk um, and, and necessarily in our country, the, the Democratic Republican sphere, uh, small d, small r, has shrunk. Um, we haven't found this sort of flourishing of everyone making their own individual decisions. What we've found is this sort of technocratic, uh, quote unquote, scientific management of politics that has no accountability to the American people and is vastly out of touch with the concerns of the American people. And again, I think that those two dynamics, uh, those two shapes of, of the problem, and not just apply to this one thing about misinformation, which is itself very important, but apply to virtually all the applications of power and the way that our government actually works today. So uh, two comments, uh, one procedural, one substantive. The procedural comment, I just want to give a plug for Gabe Kaminsky, whose article we're talking about. And he has, I think, increasingly done very good work over the past few years, kind of putting on just my, my editor hat. It's very great to see many kind of enterprising, young, right of center, kind of investigative style or investigative adjacent journalists. I'm thinking folks like Gabe Kaminsky, Aaron Sabirian with the Washington Free Beacon, who has a wonderful piece this week on uh, on Amy Wax and, and her uh, trials and tribulations at Penn Law, uh, Nate Hoffman, who's gotten some shout outs on this show as well. So it's really encouraging to see kind of these young, kind of hungry, up and coming right of center investigative journalists. But my substantive comment that I'll be brief here because I want to give Delano time, I just want to underscore one thing that Inez said, which is exactly right is that this should kind of galvanize the right to reassert actual politics qua politics. Because, you know, if, if there's one lesson that I think national conservatism tries to bring to the table, at least uh, in relationship to kind of the overly liberalized strands of conservatism that were, that were the, uh, the status quo ante, that lesson is that we live in a world where this public-private collusion is happening right before our eyes. There is this collapse of any purported distinction between the state and the, and, and the quote-unquote private sector, and any kind of purely private remedy or response is simply going to be inadequate. There is going to have to be varying kind of assertions of state power here, and that kind of gets into common carrier regulation, all the various things we talk about on this show. Um, but I'll, I'll just end myself right there because I want to give Delano time to respond. Yeah, I, I think... One way to respond um, is to ridicule these people, to mock them, um, <clears throat> and not allow them to assert a certain type of moral authority over us. Um, I, I saw a clip from Don Lemon the other day where he, he, he in, in some ways, was criticizing one of his co-hosts because she didn't, I guess, press a Republican elected official enough and on his disinformation. And I thought to myself, this is a network that literally thinks that men can become pregnant. So now when these people, whether it's CNN or 
the New York Times wants to assert uh, a particular type of moral authority and act as if they're the arbiters of truth, I would just show a big picture of uh, Dr. Rachel Levine and say, well, New York Times, you said this was the first female admiral. Excuse me. So um, I, th there are a lot of things going on here, but I, but I think one of the things that we should do is just uh, reject the left's premise um, and and not allow them to assert uh you know, this type of moral authority over us as, as conservatives. And with that, I'm going to kick it back to you um, to to discuss uh, the NAACP and the choices between abortion and, and uh, your family. Sure. And and I, I want to give a shout out to, to Josh and Newsweek for um, publishing this piece that I that I wrote uh, last week. Um, and, and my premise is fairly simple and straightforward, and is that the, the NAACP uh, the traditional civil rights organizations, um, the black progressive leaders that I term the aristocracy, right? The the politicians, the pundits, the professors, the performers, and the preachers, um, at this moment in history, all talk about abortion uh, with more frequency and more passion than they do reconstituting and rebuilding the black family. Uh, I find that to be very very disturbing. Um, you saw this sort of reach. A fever pitch after after Do the Dobbs decision, um, and and after that decision, the NAACP, the, the National Urban League, the National Action Network, Al Sharpton's outfit, um, signed a letter with Planned Parenthood, NARAL, and a number of other abortion organizations, demanding a meeting with President Biden to talk about the fact that pro-life laws are going to victimize quote unquote black women the most. Because these people seem to to believe that uh, depopulation is the civil rights uh, issue of our time, um, so and, and this is something that's been going on for quite some time. Uh, in my piece, I said that President Obama is is the last national Democrat who routinely talked about the importance of marriage and family and fatherhood as it relates to improved social outcomes across the board. Uh, obviously, he he was he was still you know a pro-choice Democrat, um, but at least he had some balance in in terms of you know, his, his policy and his rhetoric. Um, but the civil rights sort of regime today is their family formation policies and rhetoric begin with abortion and they almost never mention marriage. And in fact, I've, I've done uh, word searches on Twitter, you know, NAACP's account, National Action Network, you know, a, a variety of, of elected officials. Uh, when you search marriage, the only results that come back are quote unquote marriage equality. So that's the you know, same sex mirage. And then uh, when you do nuclear family, nothing comes back, no results. Um, so this just goes to show how quickly, you know, the party's priorities um, have changed as it relates to, to the family. And, and now they seem to believe that uh, it is better for a, a black baby to be aborted than to be born to a poor black mother. So I, it's something that I find morally troubling. Um, and then the last thing I'll say is this. I, I saw a clip this past weekend from uh, on Joy Reid's show on MSNBC. She had on a, a lawyer named Eli Mistel. And he was saying that um, we should consider uh, tying abortion rights to, to the 13th Amendment. Um, and Joy Reid sort of gleefully responded, the anti-slavery one. And in, in their thinking, um, involuntary servitude is, there's a parallel between 
the prohibition against involuntary servitude and quote unquote forced labor or force forcing a woman to bring a pregnancy to term. So uh, this is really troubling stuff. Uh, I'm not sure what the extent to which, you know, people know that this is out there. Um, but you, you won't have a black community. Um, if the, the leaders, the, the people with the most influence, um, are working this hard to, to, to kill off black babies. All right. So to the group. Yeah. I'll, let me jump in there. I, I just have to say something about this 13th Amendment argument, which has started to be floated around recently. The leading, uh, I, I hate to go ad, ad, ad hominem, but I guess I'm just going to do it for a second here. So uh, the, the person who's become the leading spokesperson for the argument that the original meaning of the 13th Amendment actually secures a quote-unquote right to abortion is a gentleman by the name of Evan Burnick. Um, who uh, is kind of a former libertarian who has become really indistinguishable from a progressive. I think he still calls himself an originalist. He teaches at Northern Illinois University Law School. I have a long and colorful history with Evan, which is really neither here nor there. But he has become kind of the leading spokesperson for this utterly ludicrous, farcical, intellectually dishonest, and utter trash garbage argument. And I, I, you know, I could throw in more adjectives. We want to drive the point across even more. But this idea that the 13th Amendment an amendment that was ratified to abolish the moral abomination of chattel slavery somehow secures a quote-unquote right for a woman to snuff out her own child in utero. I, I mean, there are not enough words to really to, to say about this. I, w- I will direct the listeners of this podcast to an actual a, a, an actual piece of scholarship that I think kind of systemically shows uh, in less kind of podcasty, slightly more kind of footnotey academic form why this argument is obviously wrong. It's a law review article by... Kurt Lash, who is one of my favorite constitutional law scholars in the countries, you can go ahead and find that on SSRN or uh, you know various other places of the internet. So go ahead and and find Kurt Lash's actual scholarship on this question. But you know th- the more relevant question, which is a topic that we've discussed on this podcast and I have written and spoken about uh, a little bit more, is whether the Fourteenth Amendment's equal protection clause, properly construed when it speaks of persons actually should be understood as prohibiting abortion, as being unconstitutional because it, it discriminates against the class of human beings that are unborn, at least at state-level homicide codes. That is the much more interesting and, if I'm being honest, at least fairly close legal question. But this 13th Amendment thing, um, Ellie Mistal, I don't have enough bad things to say about him as well. He is a blogger at a, at a horrific website called Above the Law. Ellie Mistal and Joe Patrice are two of the absolute worst bad faith legal adjacent bloggers on the internet. Um, I'm clearly a little fired up over this. Uh, this is it is an intersection of various kind of things that I hate, kind of this garbage 13th Amendment argument and Ellie Mistal. So I'm not, I'm going to cut myself off there. Um, but, you know, uh, kudos to you, Delano, also for coining the term acristocracy. That's a very colorful term. And, um, you know, I, I think Ben and I would should, should probably think about what kind of the reformed Jewish equivalent of that term could be as well, because it definitely exists in liberal Jewish communities. Um, just a couple points to add here. One, the, the ERA, uh, if if circumscribed as, as uh, a new amendment in the Constitution, will also provide a new constitutional basis potentially to in which to read in uh, a right to abortion, um, despite the fact that its proponents sometimes, depending on which proponents, sometimes say that it won't touch um, the, the abortion legal regime in the United States, uh, but other proponents advertised it on that basis, um, and a amendment was rejected, uh, amendment to the amendment, that would would uh, separate out the rest of the amendment from whatever the legal regime on abortion or constitutional regime on abortion is at that time. 
Um, I want to point out that this is not this is this is no longer an issue um, confined to the black community in the United States. Right? When the Moynihan report came out, I think the levels of out of wedlock childbearing and the decline of the nuclear family when he was calling that alarm um, back in the 60s about the black community in the United States, I think the rates of out of wedlock childbirth were somewhere between 20 and 30 um, percent. Most racial communities in the United States are now well past that, we can call it the Moynihan threshold, right? So um, for Black Americans, the number is around 70%. Uh, for American Indians, it's it's also hovering around 70%. Um, Hispanics, 50%. For whites, 28 verging in on 30 And of course, Asian Americans, 11%. So Asian Americans are, are the only major racial group in the United States uh, that doesn't uh, hit the, the so-called Moynihan threshold, not so-called. I'm, I'm making up that term right now, right? So um, the, the fact that, you know, Moynihan thought this was an emergency back in the 1970, uh, 1960s for Black Americans, the collapse of the nuclear family. Um, now, America as a whole has the largest percentage in the world out of all the countries reporting data of children not living uh, with their married biological parents. Um, that has massive implications for every aspect of our politics. Um, so I, I just want to broaden out that point. This is no longer a crisis just in the black community. In the United States, this is an American crisis uh, for, for every racial demographic group in the, in the United States other than apparently Asians. But, you know, 12% is also quite high by global standards. So this is really uh, an American phenomenon that we are not discussing much in our politics except, you know, on the right to, to sort of throw out the numbers like I just did. But they're, they're, even I think the right has not advanced um any any real or plausible way uh to stop the unraveling of the of the nuclear family in, in the the age of atomization and modernity so i think that's sort of a higher order question that's confronting us yeah i agree and of course you know charles murray called this out and coming apart i guess probably over a decade ago now that the collapse of the family writ large cutting across racial classifications then add on to it the fact that you have a below replacement level birth rate generally. And it it raises a broader question, which I think we've kind of touched on before, but never really delved into. And at some point, maybe we'll have to about why is it that affluent Western societies ultimately end up being dying societies? Uh, interesting question to ponder, maybe a more existential one. Um, just a couple other observations. Uh, first thing that should be noted with Ellie Mistal beyond everything that uh, Josh and Delano have said is this is a man who called the Constitution, and I quote here, actually trash. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure why he is uh, resting his argument on a Constitution if he thinks it's such garbage. Um, so, you know, kind of intellectually incoherent there. Um, leaving aside that argument, let's note that while it's implicit in the kind of pro-abortion lobby that Delano exposed, it was very explicit in BLM originally when I think it was its mission called for disrupting the nuclear family. And then they scrubbed that and changed it because they knew that that's outrageous on its face, even among the most woke, or at least that it would damage the legitimacy of what proved to be, of course, an illegitimate movement in the first place, which has basically collapsed now uh, and proven to be criminal, it seems like potentially and fraudulent. Um, But needless to say, not just disrupting, but destroying the nuclear family, I think is the goal. It has been made explicit. It's implicit here, but the outcome certainly has proven to be a destruction of the family. And why? Well, of course, if you destroy the family, you make people dependent on something else. 
and hapless and reliant. And that, of course, is the state. And that allows the state to usurp more power. And this is why Marxists, since time immemorial, have been all about destroying the family as an institution to replace it with the state. And I think there's a case to be made that it, the state has crowded out the family, which is how you explain that you could go from the Moynihan report calling this a crisis 50, 60 years ago, have the great society imposed upon us, and you end up where we are today. So it's all of a piece. And the last thing I'll note is, you know, what does it say about a movement broadly that the movement celebrates the, the killing of babies? I mean, in fact, what they're saying is destroy the family, destroy modernity, kill your energy sources, eat bugs. And at the end of the day, that's a that's a death cult. Um, and with with that, um, I'm going to once again turn to something that is not too much fun um, to talk about. Uh, on, on February 3rd, there was a 50-car uh, derailment in East Palestine, Ohio. Um, I'm just going to go through some of, of the facts that we know. We don't know enough facts about this. So just like the the discussion we opened um, we opened up with, uh, this, this is necessarily speculative because we have not received the kind of information that, that should be necessary from an industrial accident of this scale. Um, so the, the initial reporting was that uh, the cause of the derailment was a rail axle mechanical issue. Um, there were 10 cars with hazardous materials among those 50 and five most uh, most worryingly filled with vinyl chloride, which apparently is a relative of phosgene used uh, during World War One as a chemical weapon. So um, this is something that that is very dangerous to, to human and animal life um, and was then intentionally released. Right. The uh, government agencies, relevant government agencies, including the EPA, decided to do a controlled burn to avoid explosion, which necessitated evacuating the town um, of, of East Palestine, Ohio, um, forcibly evacuating that town because they that created that toxic fume. It's one of the few images uh, that has come out of this disaster and actually circulating in media is that that, that you know explosion and toxic fume reaching up into the sky. Um, the residents were that were evacuated have since been sent back into their homes. Um, the EPA is saying that this is contained. Uh, of course, there's a reason to worry because the Ohio River is a water supply for millions of people, both in and around um, Ohio, um, and and reaching all the way down uh, in into the the Midwest. So, um, why are we hearing anything like why are we we uh, only talking about this so many days later? Right. So, um, eleven days after this accident, right. I've, I only really realized the extent of this. And I, you know, like like all of you, I'm sure I do follow, you know, media events. We do follow politics and national headlines. Um, really had only seen a headline here or there about a derailment until several days ago. Why was that? Why was there no national media coverage comparable, for example, to uh, the Flint water disaster or to uh, the oil spill, uh, recent oil spill in the Gulf a few years ago? Uh, one, one of the speculations is, of course, that this area is a poor white area. Um, this is maybe not something that the liberal media is interested in covering. Um, for that reason, it's not an, a, a uh, easily uh, folded in to the leftist uh, narrative. So maybe for that reason, getting not as much coverage. Um, some other questions, though, the, the role of, of sort of maintenance erosion and, and general incompetence and collapse of, of our infrastructure uh, this is, again, this is something that Trump uh, brought up in 2016 that I think was an underrated, uh, important blank of his platform. The fact that our infrastructure really does seem to be collapsing and, and nothing seems to be working as well as it did. Um, 
So I, I think investigating the cause of this derailment uh, in more detail and a more public way is, is an, a necessary or needs to happen. Um, there's been several more less devastating derailments since then. There, there are a lot of derailments in the United States. It's a very big country. There are many trains going. Apparently, there are uh, as many trains getting derailed as there are random uh, UFOs floating across our airspace. Um, so we don't know what the baseline is here. Um, but I, I think it's well worth investigating, especially in in light of the recent um, rail maintenance strike, right? That was uh, kind of an internal democratic feud, but ultimately uh, Joe Biden's administration decided to uh, shut down the socialists in his flank um, who were supporting the, uh, the, the rail strike uh, and, and continue to operate. And one of the concerns raised during that strike was that the maintenance crews are tired, that, that maintenance is becoming overwhelming, that, that a lot of these things are getting older, and we simply haven't been able to replace them or, or restore them um, and maintain them to, to the level that we should be. Um, and then finally, there's there's the role of the transportation secretary, Pete Buttigieg, who, uh, who had not, as of uh, yesterday, come out and said anything about this accident, this major accident that's affecting uh, people in Ohio and potentially could uh, impact millions of people. He did, however, say that, you know, uh, apparently construction has too many white men in it. Um, so he ha he found time to say that, but not uh, anything relevant about this this devastating accident. Um, and I think it, it points more generally to this role of what uh, I initially called McKinsey governance. But uh, Matt Peterson um, over at New Founding re relabeled, I think, more wittily as McKinsey midwit governance. Um, and that's the governance of credentialed incompetence uh, for anything other than ideological um, ideological policing, right? Uh, so it's it's not just that we always talk about the ideological side of this, of course, uh, on this show, but there's also a huge competency gap going on. Uh, it appears that the United States cannot maintain our railways. We cannot do those basic functions of government. And in fact, we are kind of governed by people who uh, maybe maybe quite smart, uh, maybe have many degrees on their walls, uh, many credentials. Uh, but actually, the, all those the, the, those credentials have prepared them, and our society more broadly has prepared our elites to do is ideologically, you know, ideolo enforce ideological diktats uh, instead of actually the the rubber meets the road aspects of governance. So this incompetence, I think, is is also something um, worth investigating in the light of this terrible accident that we're still finding out more about. So with that, I'll, I'll kick it out to the rest of you. So Pete Buttigieg's term as transportation secretary has to be by far, bar none, worst in the not-so-illustrious history of the position of transportation secretary. I mean, I guess we could have predicted that. I mean, the man's qualifications for this job are vanishingly thin, to put it mildly. I don't think it takes a rocket scientist to discern that the only reason he has this job is due to his woke intersectional identity politics status, due to his personal sexual orientation. But if you look at all the various transportation-related events that have happened just recently, I mean, it wasn't that long ago. It was literally just, just in the past few weeks that the FAA had the first grounding of all airplanes nationally over our sky since 9-11. That, that literally happened over the past month, and we just totally forgot about it. And, you know, we were told that there was some sort of, I think, update to the systems or a glitch, whatever. I mean, honestly, again, going back to the whole tinfoil hat thing, it's, you know, it's, it's very tempting to try to connect what happened there with the FAA planes to all this balloon stuff and the train derailments. But, you know, these images out of eastern Ohio are just shocking. I mean, to the extent that we're seeing them at all, just absolutely shocking stuff, a literal mushroom cloud. And part of it was because it was vinyl chloride that was on this train. 
you know, I was talking with, uh, with with a friend who's a native Ohioan yesterday. You know, he was he was saying this. This probably didn't take years. Literally, probably didn't take years to 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 get that community ecologically and environmentally speaking fully back to what it was as of just a few days ago. And you know, look, I mean, I spoke at a conference in Steubenville, Ohio, not terribly far south of East Palestine, Ohio, back in October. This part of the country is already reeling. I mean, this is this is literally ground zero of everything that kind of national conservatives talk about, about kind of the outsourcing, the strip mining of the heartland and all that. So I mean, you know, my heart goes out to those to those local communities. Um, bit of a rough welcome, obviously, uh, for our friend Senator J.D. Vance, uh, the, the new senator from Ohio, to be dealing with this. Um, but, you know, I, I, at this point, I'm just praying for the best for, for the people in that part of Ohio, because this is a real, real mess as well. So I would just uh, underscore Inez's point that we can't do basic things anymore, but we do all of the late Republic nonsense under the sun, like subsidizing drug abuse, like imposing the entire woke DEI regime including on our most strategically significant areas of government, like the national security apparatus. And I think that tells you everything you need to know about the unseriousness of our credentialed, intellectual yet idiot, as Nicholas Nassim Taleb terms it, although I hesitate to use that because he attacked uh, me at one point, actually, on Twitter and others uh, over, you know, Russiagate and challenging the national security apparatus, I believe on a whole host of other topics. So he's kind of undermined himself, but I think his point still holds. We do have intellectuals yet idiots who are credentialed yet neither wise nor prudent nor statesmen. But just a couple other observations as well. You know, Mayor Pete in a press recent press conference neglected really to talk about what was going on in Ohio um, and essentially indicated that his real focus is not in the crumbling infrastructure, but in preventing white laborers from rebuilding it. You know, his sole focus, and this goes back to his invocation of the power broker about racist roads being built in America, but his sole focus is who is going to do the job of building infrastructure in America, not the fact that it is crumbling all around us. Another observation, the EPA will step in and destroy one's bank account and life if they dare to want to build a structure on what the EPA ends up terming wetlands. Yet here you have a true ecological disaster that the images seem to indicate is threatening the lives of livestock and other animals. And we know is ultimately going to filter down to the people potentially through their drinking water. And yet they're basically saying no big deal, not much to see here. This is an EPA that will derail all manner of projects on the most asinine environmental grounds. Yet here you have an actual disaster and they're pretty much mum on this issue. And 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 where's Amtrak Joe and all this lover of trans for that matter and defender of the common man? Um, you know, on the no coverage by the media aspect of this, it's of course because this is not beneficial. This is not a good split screen or not a good image for the administration. I'm surprised they haven't turned it around to try to say that Joe Biden cares about the common everyday American man in the Rust Belt and you know build on the State of the Union, you know, lunch pail Joe uh, sort of image. Maybe they'll get there. Um, and, you know, the last thing I'll note is the left, and this is from the DOJ and beyond, has been uh, deathly focused on environmental justice. Well, where is the environmental justice here? Maybe there really is inequity in our environmental justice when you see how this administration responds, when it's deplorables and others who have to suffer the depredations of their incompetence. 
and, and I'll just say, um, <clears throat> excuse me, really quick to close out the segment. Um, I'm very interested in, in, you know, the investigation into these derailments. Um, I, I know as, and I said, you know, it's a, it's a large country and, and these things happen from time to time, but, um, I, I'd really like to know if there's some bad actors behind these things that are doing these things intentionally for, for political purposes. With that, I'll, uh, go around and ask for everyone's final thoughts before we close out this week's episode. Yeah, I, I guess I'll just use my time just to kind of follow up from the previous segment. Um, so, you know, I, I I don't even think we touch on, you know, I mentioned kind of the the first time the FAA grounded all national flights since 9-11, which is a story that has been totally swept under the radar. You know, these hor- these horrific derailments. I mean, there was a major rail strike. I mean, there was a, you know, there was a, almost like a near shutdown. I mean, this was this was kind of the issue in Congress. This was kind of the issue percolating in, in December and lead up to Christmas was this whole national rail strike. There have been unprecedented supply chain issues. I mean, you know, here, you know, where I live in Florida, out in California, when on the coast, there, are, you know, there, there have been these images. I've seen them with my own naked eye. There have been these images of these uh, these freight tankers just sitting out there, literally sitting out there, you know, a few miles offshore because the workers aren't there or, or, or there's no one to unload it. it. It's just been a total mess. I, I, I mean, in US, United States infrastructure, just to Delano's point, uh, you know, like, from like a husband or father's perspective, just kind of looking around the home and the whole place is falling apart. There is just this ineluctable sense of decline. And, you know, again, we try not we try our best not to be doomers on this show, not to kind of overdo it with kind of the late stage Republic kind of end of Rome stuff. But there is a lot of inexplicable nonsense going on right now. And obviously all of this transportation stuff, for lack of a better term, you know, we're not even talking about here what we discussed in the beginning of the show, which was all these UFOs and balloons, China seemingly doing whatever it wants there. So um, what a mess. I, I, I guess it's basically my final thought there. I think Inez is very much onto something when she says that this is kind of the morass of kind of the the over-credentialed class, the, the McKinsey midwits, uh, as our friend Matt Peterson has apparently coined the the phenomenon. And, uh, you know, I, I, I don't have a quick and dirty solution here, but uh, wow, uh, you know, just what an absolute mess. And, you know, I guess the only silver lining is what an opening, what an opening for the opposition party, aka the Republican Party, to potentially go in there and get these bums out of office in a year and a half. And I guess that's what it comes back to for me. Yeah, that's but that's always the, the black pill part of it, right? Like we, we can talk about the potential solutions, but it doesn't seem that there are a lot of figures in the Republican Party embracing even talking about the, the serious problems, right? Um, and and I'll get to that in just one minute with uh, Nikki Haley's announcement and and the the um, the ad that she released this morning. Um, but first, I wanted to just further what Josh said. You know, wealth and and liberty, such that they are, we're still wealthy and perhaps have less liberty. Uh, but but neither wealth nor liberty is is the baseline condition of mankind, uh, and and sometimes I think uh, and maybe this is an inevitable problem of decadence. But um, there there is this this sense, especially among actually I think uh, our our generation, all four of us, right, uh, who I think grew up in the '90s. Um, there's this sense that American dominance, that uh, you know, being able to go to the grocery store and and um, purchase whatever you need for your family that week, that um, you know, that kind of wealth and freedom is somehow going to continue. 
uh, to to chug along regardless of how many pickaxes we take to their foundation. Um, and, and that's simply not the case. It's not the history of mankind. And with that, I mean, the, the just to return to the point about the Republican Party being really disappointing, um, you know, Nikki Haley kicked off her campaign. First of all, it's it's idiot season, right? It's it's uh, seasons for everyone to announce they're running for president, even when they have everyone knows they have absolutely no shot of becoming president. Right. Um, there, there have been a number of those in the last couple of weeks. Um, but this one uh, in particular uh, rubbed me the wrong way because the, the the primary fact that Nikki Haley announced herself with the first thing that she wanted, the first foot she wanted to put forward as a candidate for president is basically a series of checkboxes saying that she was the first minority woman governor um, in America, which apparently may or may not be true. Anyway, um, and 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 sort of touting those those credentials, she she ends her ad with this really obnoxious thing about how it, it pushing back is better if you do it in heels, right? This kind of Republican girl boss saying um, image that I find extremely off putting. And then the content of her ad was basically Mitt Romney's platform from 2012. It doesn't address any of of the crises that we've just been talking about on this show, and we have talked about on this show um, in terms of the deeper foundations and what I just referenced about the deeper foundations. Um, of America, it doesn't. It, it's just it's a it's a happy talk ad from from 2012. Um, and it, it, in that sense, it's not because I had some great hopes for Nikki Haley herself, but in that sense, the fact that there's still a large part of the Republican Party that thinks that that's the message uh, that needs to be put out there to the American people, um, and that's that's the the sort of governance that America needs uh, in face of these mounting crises that are go to the root of who we are as a people. Uh, is is really disappointing and black billing. Uh, I'll go in a slightly different direction, although equally disappointing and black billing, perhaps. Um, last week, I tuned in with keen interest to the House Oversight Committee hearings where uh, several Twitter officials or ex-Twitter officials, including uh, Jim Baker and Yoel Roth and Vijaya Gade were uh, grilled to some extent and found that that hearing to be somewhat revealing. Uh, and then also the weaponization committee's first hearing. And just a, a couple observations on that hearing. Uh, first of all, the totally smug and condescending behavior of the Democrats on that committee was uh, galling and even surprising by the standards of you know, the party of Adam Schiff. Uh, the way in which they sought to completely destroy the credibility of the witnesses on the stand in the most awful ways, uh, including some exchanges that um, the freshman congressman from New York, Dan Goldman, engaged with a variety of the witnesses, including Jonathan Turley and a former FBI official, uh, Thomas Baker as well, urge you to check it out because it's so illustrative of how the Democrats approach these hearings in the most adversarial kind of fashion. Um, Jamie Raskin uh, re engaged in a remarkable uh, projection, projectionista kind of testimony where he claimed that Republicans were engaging in projection uh, and that Trump had weaponized the national security and law enforcement apparatus against his political foes. It's really remarkable gaslighting, but it speaks to how good they are at being the propagandists that they are. And to me, underscores the fact that those leading the weaponization committee, if they want to achieve anything from it, they need to very clearly and comprehensively make a case going around gatekeep media gatekeepers who obviously want to destroy that committee. They need to make a clear and compelling case that there is this multifaceted effort to destroy us and our liberties and justice. 
show very clearly and concisely how that campaign has unfolded and then lay out the, the question that every single time these topics are raised that I always get, and I'm sure everyone on this panel does is, okay, so what are we going to do about it? Where is the accountability aspect of things? Because we know through open sourcing, the variety of depredations that the state has engaged in, in concert with private sector actors against all of us in recent years, you know, where is the beef ultimately at the end of the day in terms of legislation, which imposes serious criminal penalties for this kind of behavior, for massive defunding or the threats of it, uh, in addition to the ostracization of bringing these people in front of Congress. And there need to be criminal referrals, period, full stop, even though the Merrick Garland Justice Department won't honor them because maybe the next Justice Department will. So this is just a, you know, to the weaponization committee and those who want to see it achieve success needs to make its case very clearly, concisely, and comprehensively. And then it needs to move quickly to, and here, here's the remedy to it. Because if there is no remedy, as we go back to again and again, if there's no teeth, if there's no punishment for this behavior that strikes at the core of our republic, then it just guarantees far worse to come. And I fear that is where we're going, uh, particularly under this administration. Yeah, I just wanted to pick up on um, on a point that was made in, in the last segment, right? In terms of Mayor Pete and his primary qualifications being his his sexual preference, um, that seems to be an emphasis in this in this administration, right? As to Inez's point, um, Republicans play the identity politics game as well. It's, it's not, I don't think, it's as emphasized as it is on the left, but. Um, when you hear the president talk about Mayor Pete and and Karen Jean Pierre, right, the, the press secretary, and um, uh, Admiral, excuse me, uh, Rachel Levine, and Sam Britton, right, Sticky Fingers, that's no longer with the, the administration. It, it's always about you know their I identity, their their skin color, their sexual preference, their gender identity, um, and I think what we are seeing is that when you there's nothing wrong with diversity per se, um, particularly when that diversity means a wider net. But what we're getting is a diversity that translates into a lower bar. Um, and every everything that these people touch tends to, to fall apart. Um, and, and I think what we're seeing in this administration in terms of uh, infrastructure, um, in terms of sort of the general management of the country, is something that we've been seeing, and, I, and I'll go to uh, a different area in, in public education, particularly urban education, for generations, uh, which is people who are are not able um, to do their primary job, and then, you know, they they turn to something else that they feel that they're more qualified at doing. Again, tied to identity, um, and I'm I'm thinking really of you know of a report out of Baltimore that shows that um, among Baltimore uh, students who took standardized tests. There were 23 schools in which there was not a single student proficient in math. Um, this is something that should be, you know, hair on fire type five alarm emergency when you have one of our major cities that's, that's continuously producing students uh, who are either either illiterate and or innumerate. And I think, again, the response, it, and particularly in recent years in, in uh, public education, K through 12, public and private for that matter, is to say, well, let's focus on identity. Let let's uh, make make it so that kids see themselves in the curriculum. Um, let's focus on partisan, you know, political uh, issues. Let's let's post on our Instagram account about you know Roe versus Wade or Pride Month, 
Um, and all of these things have uh, tremendously ne negative effects. And, and I say it this way all the time. What good is it teaching Jamal to be an activist if he needs Brad to write his signs? And, and at this point, what good is it to teach any of the kids to be activists if, if they need mom and dad or, or in a couple of years, Xi Jinping to write their signs? So um, we, we are completely focused on all of the wrong things. I think we, we need to get back to the society um, that values uh, merit, excellence, grit, determination, competence, wisdom. Regardless in the package that it comes in, in terms of you know uh, skin color or 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 uh, sex, but make those things um, the main thing that 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 we look for in terms of candidates. And then the other thing, and I'll say this: a lot of times people think that, and I'm I'm thinking about President Biden when he declared that he wanted to to select a black woman for Supreme Court nomination, and and what that those types of declarations do is put an undue amount of pressure on the person who you say that you're helping. And really when Joe Biden did that, he was helping himself because what, what he did, Katanji Brown Jackson could have been the most qualified. I'll leave the Josh to make a legal analysis on, on, her, on her jurisprudence, but she's forever going to be stamped as the candidate who got her job because of her race and sex. Um, and it's unfair to do that. It's unfair to put that type of pressure on people um, because you want to be seen as a as a good and a righteous person. So um, I, I, I don't want to pass on this this society, you know, to my kids. Um, I don't want people to to see them primarily as 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 black children as it relates to giving them opportunities. I want them to know that they earned every opportunity that that they've been given um, and so that they can walk into any room with their heads held high and feeling confident in their abilities. Let me put a very, very quick end note on that, uh, if okay, Ines here. Um, so exactly what Delano just said there, this idea that someone, perhaps most in particular a black person, might feel that they are underqualified or have a certain chip on his or her shoulder because of the affirmative action regime. This has been a late motif of Clarence Thomas's jurisprudence on this exact topic, going back to the very first time he wrote about it. Uh, most specifically in a case called Adirond in the mid-1990s. I just want to say, I, I know we're very much out of time here, but you know, affirmative action is on the docket, the Supreme Court term, and I literally get chills down my spine as I think about the majority opinion that Clarence Thomas might write to eradicate affirmative action. Yeah, I, ideological activism extracts a, co a cost and competence, I think. Um, and on that note, uh, on behalf of Josh, Delano, and Ben, thank you for tuning in. I'm Inez Seppin, and I'll see you at the next NAPCON School on.